Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Absolutely, we are back. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is episode number 16, and it's great to have you uh, with us here. For all those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, I do appreciate your continued listenership and sharing of the podcast with others to uh, to help grow the podcast to get this information out there, as always. As I think this uh, information is uh, very important, this is uh, an educational podcast, first and foremost, and as I've said it before, of the 320 million people who currently reside in the United States of America, I, I firmly believe that each and every single one of them should be listening to this podcast, because without this podcast, I, I have a great concern of their education in regards to everything about the founding of this country and this time period between the 1770s and early 1800s. And how on earth are we supposed to be good citizens of this country if we don't understand that? Uh, personally, I think it's impossible. Thus, the reason why we learn this information. And for those of you around the world and, and other parts of the, the world, this is, uh, like I said, the, these concepts are not bordered concepts. That is to say, they, they don't have, there's no borders around these ideas, these concepts that the Founding Fathers and others, the people who are writing to the Founding Fathers and the people who are receiving letters from the Founding Fathers, uh, none of these concepts are are within the borders of the United States, confined there, that is. These, these are borderless ideas about the relationship between people and government and between the government and the people and on the general freedom and liberty of all peoples, not just the people within the borders of the United States. And the, the governments of the world would do well to study this particular period of time and these people. Those who serve in the governments around the world would do themselves well, and they would do a great service to their constituents to be able to study this information and learn it and adapt some, if not all, of the concepts contained herein to their better form of government. Obviously, we can't agree on all these concepts. No, nobody can. There's going to be things we all disagree with, but, you know, there's, there's going to be a great many that are just timeless and uh, irrefutable, inalienable as the Founding Fathers would say. And we're going to continue learning all these concepts here today. We're going to continue with the John Adams letters. And today we're going to touch on, we're going to revisit some stuff that he was talking about with regards to the state of the situation in Massachusetts and Boston at the time. We're going to read one letter that kind of expands on that a little bit, and the other letters are going to basically be a continuation of the last episode of this podcast, where... He talks about this new mission it is that he and many others have to go to Philadelphia and the weight that is on his shoulders. I mentioned in the last episode that John Adams, I don't think, fully understood the, 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 the scale of what was about to happen. I don't think any of them did, to be honest with you. I mean, even those who were pushing for some kind of separation from Great Britain and were not going to be dissuaded from that particular eventuality, that is to say that goal... I don't even think they fully understood. I think Sam Adams was largely fully committed to that cause. I don't think even they really understand the full s scope of this thing. I mean, who can uh, understand the full scope of a major war breaking out basically in your backyard? Uh, who could understand those things and the weight that would be on your shoulders? I mean, how many Americans would be willing to commit to such a cause today in defense of liberty and freedom? Like, exactly like that which the Founding Fathers discussed. Not some specious 
bizarre notion of freedom and liberty. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real, actual, defined freedom and liberty, like what the founding fathers were talking about. I don't know. I don't know if they. I don't know if there's. Honestly, I don't know if there's very many people in the world who could stand this uh, concept of having a war in their backyard in order to uh, gain those freedoms and those liberties. It's a sad day when it has to happen that way. You know, you'd hope that people could get their freedom and their liberty without having to do such a thing. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. The tyrant, the dictator, the despot, drunk on power, is an insidious thing. It is a very insidious thing. I can't imagine what evil it descends from. I really can't. It's hard to understand how people can be so evil and so malicious towards others, especially towards their what's what is t- supposed to be their own people. I mean, you can you can understand why, you know, evil countries attack and destroy others in some kind of vicious way. Think Germany in the 1940s, but how in the world do these governments do this kind of thing to their own people? But they do it every single day of the week. Every single minute of every single day, every hour of every day, every day of the week, every week of the month, every month of the year, and every year since the beginning of time, almost, there is some, there is some government somewhere out there oppressing its people, or some warlord, or some lord, some despot, dictator, power-hungry, lunatic, doing exactly this. And the Founding Fathers were fighting against that. So, you know, and it wasn't so much that King George had become exactly the worst of the worst. He had not. He wasn't the worst of the worst. And it wasn't that he was so bad that people were being, you know, murdered in the streets and all the rest of it. It wasn't like that. The Boston Massacre notwithstanding. But the Founding Fathers saw it going in that direction, and they felt like they had to do something about it. And so here we are. So let's get back into it. Let's start going through the weight on the shoulders of John Adams as he began to see this situation building around him, this thought of despotism and tyranny growing and growing and growing without end, motivating him to take some kind of action to stand up and say something, along with many others. Let's get into that in this particular episode of the podcast right now. All right, let's get into it. You know, I I, I certainly, uh, it is my eternal goal, I think, uh, to get folks interested in listening to the words of the Founding Fathers and just to listen to what they have to say. Not what other people have to say about them, but what they actually said in these letters. I think it's very important. And I'm so very glad that you folks are with me on this journey to see that that happens, to see that we get the word out there about this. And there's um, there's just a great many folks who would, uh, if they were alive today from the 1700s, you know, the Founding Fathers, but also the veterans who actually fought in the war. And by veterans, uh, obviously the militia folks and the regular army. And by militia, I obviously mean just, you know, regular farmers and townsfolk mostly, but they would they would want to know that we're sitting here today in the 21st century learning about this to, so that they're not forgotten. And, uh, you know, it's you do them a great honor by uh, participating in this podcast, I think. Or if you're doing your own independent study, the Founding Fathers and what they did, uh, you're doing those folks a, a great honor in doing that. Let's get into it again with John Adams here. We're going to talk about this first letter uh, written from John Adams to Abigail Adams from Falmouth, Massachusetts, on the 7th of July, 1774. And actually, during this period of time, I've read a number of letters from John Adams from this particular time. He writes from Falmouth and a couple of other places, not typically from Braintree or Boston, which is where he was based out of most typically, but elsewhere. And I get the impression he was traveling around a bit, uh, seeing clients, uh, legal clients, for his law practice. As if this man didn't have enough to worry about with his mission to Philadelphia, which was coming up here before too long, he's also, you know, doing his job, his legal job. He's trying to provide for his family. He's trying to take care of his wife and his children. And he's trying to do a service to his clients. 
This is a man who had a full plate, right? Kind of like George Washington with his farm. Uh, George Washington was very busy on his farm. He had a lot of work to do. John Adams is also very busy. And this first letter that we're going to read today, is it, it talks about a little bit of that. It talks about one of his cases that he's working. But it has to do with something that was happening at times within the colonies, and it provides us a perspective of what John Adams thought about it generally, and I think it's valuable to us today. So let's read this. Quote, I am engaged in a famous cause, the cause of King, of Scarborough versus a mob, that broke out that broke into his house and rifled his papers and terrified him, his wife, children, and servants in the night. The terror and distress, the distraction and horror of his family cannot be described by words or painted upon canvas. It is enough to move a statue, to melt a heart of stone, to read the story. A mind susceptible of the feelings of humanity, a heart which can be touched with sensibility for human misery and wretchedness, must reluct must burn with resentment and indignation at such outrageous injuries. These private mobs I do and will detest. If popular commotions can be justified in opposition to attacks upon the Constitution, it can be only when the fundamentals are invaded, nor then unless for absolute necessity and with great caution. But these tarrings and featherings, these breaking open houses by rude and insolent rabbles in resentment for private wrongs, or in pursuance of private prejudices and passions, must be discountenanced, cannot be even excused upon any principle which can be entertained by a good citizen, a worthy member of society, end quote. You know, I'm struck, even in these relatively simple letters to his wife, John Adams to Abigail Adams, these were not meant for public consumption, all right, originally. Thank goodness we have access to them today. You know, it, it is truly a wonder and... and, and uh, an amazing thing that we have access to these letters today. What in the world would we do without them? Continue on in ignorance and without them? But even in these letters, there's so much to take from this man's wisdom. It really is. And and you can say, you know, well, it's his opinion, you know, I disagree with it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But this was a very educated individual, John Adams. Again, I've said it before. Back in this particular time frame, all these people had, they didn't have, they didn't have Netflix Everybody knows that. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't go to the movie theater. They didn't have video games. They really had their family, their work, and their books. And John Adams especially, this man spent a great deal of time reading those books. And thus the reason why I, I lean on John Adams' wisdom a great deal. More so than I, I, I would anybody alive today. Despite the fact that his wisdom is 200 years old, it's timeless. So the cause of king, he starts out his letter with the cause of king, quote, I am engaged in a famous cause, the cause of king, of Scarborough versus a mob, end quote. He's referring to a court case, and he's a lawyer in this case, and he's talking about the situation where somebody, you know, went into, went into a house, a mob actually, went into a house and terrified this guy, his family. But even in just this, this discussion with his wife by correspondence uh, of this particular thing, there comes out of it this wisdom from John Adams. And I actually did read some of the legal papers associated with this case. I would not recommend it, by the way. Uh, if you ever want to research this yourself, I, I, you can if you want to. If you're like a lawyer and you want to you actually read some legal papers from the 1700s, knock yourself out. But uh, for me personally, I actually do have quite a bit of experience reading legal papers. I do it on a fairly regular basis. All kinds of legal papers, uh, from legal agreements and trusts and corporate, corporate filing documents, loans, agreements, things of this nature, various legal documents. Even I had trouble reading the legal documents associated with this case that John Adams wrote, or wrote up. 
it was written in this weird 1700s kind of speak, very confusing. I had to labor over it to understand at all what the heck he was talking about. And part of that, I think, was that the uh, the draft that I was reading might have been an original draft, not a final draft, because there were numerous errors in it, punctuation errors and things of that nature. But anyway, so he, d- he definitely did do a lot of work on this case in this uh, in regards to this mob, and he, he talks generally about mobs. Quote, These private mobs I do and will detest. If popular commotions can be just in opposition to attacks upon the Constitution, it can be only when fundamentals are invaded, end quote. So he's saying these, these, these private mobs organized, which happened at the time, and he talks about the tarrings and featherings, quote, but these tarrings and featherings, end quote. He even talks about that, which tarring and feathering is basically literally where you pour tar over somebody and you, you douse them with feathers and you make them look like some kind of a feathered human being. Sounds funny when you think about it, but in practice it was actually quite dreadfully painful as I understand it. And... These kinds of acts of revenge, these acts of just mindless outrage, he hated them. He absolutely hated these things. He detested them. And he says that it cannot be, this behavior cannot be excused by, quote, a worthy member of society, end quote. So if you, if you consider yourself a worthy member of society, you can't excuse this kind of behavior. That's what he's saying. This, uh, the, these, the, these kind of terror mobs that would go around. Interesting. So this is another thing that John Adams is very upset about that's going on in Massachusetts at the time. We talked about the the sins uh, that were going on in Boston as perpetuated by the military, the Navy and the Army of the British Empire and their agents, the agents of revenue, excisemen, as he called them. He's not he's not happy with any of this. He's a very unhappy. And this is probably what motivates him to accept his commission to go to Congress in Philadelphia. He wants to see something done about all this. He wants something... Uh, Something to change. And let's, so let's talk about John Adams' journey before he goes to Philadelphia. Now let's, let's, let's talk about what he was thinking at the time. How are we going to know what John Adams was thinking at the time? Good news. John Adams being a, uh, a guest on the podcast, he's going to tell us. So let's go to John Adams uh, from June 25th, 1774. This is from the diary of John Adams. Quote, I wander alone and ponder. I muse. I mope. I ruminate. I am often in reveries and brown studies. The objects before me are too grand and multifarious for my comprehension. We have not men fit for the times. We are deficient in genius, in education, in travel, in fortune, and everything. I feel utterable anxiety. God grant us wisdom and fortitude. Should the opposition be suppressed? Should this country submit? What infamy and ruin? God forbid. Death in any form is less miserable. End quote. Again, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether it's just me. You folks can tell me. I really, I really am eager to hear back from you folks. By the way, I actually, I actually do want to hear back from you folks and, and know what. Am I alone in this? When, when I read a small paragraph from John Adams, just as I did, am I the only one who's struck by that? And when I say struck by that, I mean just, just full of appreciation for the words committed to the page, the amazing window that this gives us into John Adams' life and his thoughts. John Adams is a man, I mean, his name should, in my, my humble opinion, should ring out through the ages. This is a man, along with ben, a Benjamin Franklin, along with a Samuel Adams, for crying out loud, and even some of the others, you know, lesser known, like John Jay at times. Uh, some of their words really should echo through the ages because of what these folks did and accomplished, but also, you know, because of the value in it. There's, there's a lot of value in this, um, in this statement. So he's just walking along, right? Quote, I wander alone and ponder. I muse. I mope. I ruminate. End quote. 
And then further on, quote, The objects before me are too grand and multifarious for my comprehension. We have not men fit for the times, end quote. He understands the gravity of the situation, clearly. He says we, we, are not, we, don't, we don't have men fit for the times. He's concerned about this in education, probably in experience. And these were very educated men. John Adams was not an idiot. He knew history. He was a student of history, as were a great many of the Founding Fathers, because again, what else were they going to do with their time back then? Play video games? No. They're going to read books, and what do those books largely contain? History. They're going to read that history, that good old-fashioned history, from back at the Roman Empire and the Greeks and all the rest of it. They're going to read a lot of this stuff, and John Adams would later write about a lot of that stuff. But even then, he still felt like they weren't fit for the times. He knew that there was going to be great, uh, a great need for, for wisdom and intelligence. Thank goodness they had Benjamin Franklin, I guess. And John Adams. John Adams was he was he was much he was much more wise than I think he gives himself credit for at this particular period in time. And he asks for wisdom. Quote, God grant us wisdom and fortitude, end quote. There's again the, the man's religion coming out. It's all over the place, by the way. You can't hide from this man's religion uh, and his faith. Some people try to. Some people try to hide the Founding Fathers' faith. They do it deliberately. It's part of uh, it's part of falsifying history, the history record. There's a great nefarious intent in trying to hide the faith of a John Adams uh, away from the public eye, which some people try to do in their in their teaching and in their writing. When they when they write about John Adams, sometimes they try to uh, they try to hide who he really was, and they try to hide who many of the Founding Fathers were in this regard. They try to hide some of what George Washington was and Thomas Jefferson. Same same kind of thing. They try to they try to hide their faith in their religion uh, because it doesn't suit their purposes. And again, it goes back to that old thing I I said in prior episodes. You know, you don't want to look back at history and try to overlay a modern political template on top of history. Just take it for what it is. Anyway, I uh, just thought I'd mention that again because it pops up in this letter. So he says, "quote We are deficient in genius, in education, in travel, in fortune, in everything." End quote. So this great weight hangs upon John Adams. You can tell by this letter, at least I can. I, I basically interpret from this letter, he feels the weight of what's coming. He feels it. And he doesn't even fully understand just how bad this thing is going to get. But he but he definitely feels it, the weight of it. And it's heavy, weighs heavy on his shoulders. This is not an easy thing. We look back on it and we, we think to ourselves again, the victory in the Revolutionary War was always going to happen. He didn't know that. In 1774, you think John Adams knew that? No, he didn't know that. They didn't even know the war was going to happen yet. These people had no... And if war did break out, these people didn't ha didn't hope for anything other than just basic survival because they had no reason to believe they would win a war. We take it for granted and we don't appreciate what these, these people went through. The, the pressure that was on them, the stress. And in this last line here, one more time, quote, Should the opposition be suppressed? Should this country submit? What infamy and ruin? God forbid, death in any form is less terrible. End quote. Would we feel the same today? If our fundamental rights were under threat of attack, would we say that, quote, death in any form is less terrible, end quote? I gotta tell you, there are a lot of people in this country, in the United States, and around the world, for all you folks listening around the world, there are a lot of folks in the United States who would much rather take surrender over their rights and would much rather embrace the warm comfort of the chains of slavery than the cold, harsh reality of freedom and liberty. That's just the truth. You might say, Roman, for Pete's sake, man, you have no idea what you're talking about. Everybody loves democracy. Everybody would fight for democracy. Again, number one, we don't live in a democracy, do we? No, we don't. And number two, it's just not true. A lot of people would not fight for this country if they if they had the opportunity to, whether from some foreign aggressor or from some tyrant dictator like King George. If somebody tried to set themselves up to be some kind of a king dictator. That's a sad commentary, but John Adams is telling us here, that's what you should do. You should fight for those things. You should. 
surrender is not something that you should be entertaining as an option. And if you are, there's something wrong. That's what John Adams is telling you right here. There's something wrong with you. Because he believed that death in any form is less terrible. He doesn't just say death is less terrible. He says death in any form is less terrible. And what does that mean, any form? Think torture, mutilation, all manner of things. Being nailed to a cross, for crying out loud, whatever. Death in any form is less terrible. I agree with him. I tend to agree with him. As hard a reality as that is to face... But this is what he was thinking of before going on to Philadelphia. Very important to keep that in mind. This is the gravity of the situation. This is not some easy thing he was walking into, and he knew that. Now let's talk about that. Let's talk about what John Adams viewed as public service in this regard, going off to Philadelphia and serving in Congress, the Continental Congress. And let's talk about how that compares today. Uh, I'm going to read you a letter from John Adams to James Warren, the 25th of June, 1774. It was written from Ipswich. Again, John Adams during this particular period of time was running around all over the place. Quote, Politics are, are an ordeal path among, among red-hot plowshares. Who then would be a politician for the pleasure of running about barefoot among them? Yet somebody must. And I think those whose characters, circumstances, educations call them ought to follow. Yet I don't think that one or a few men are under any moral obligation to sacrifice themselves and families, all the pleasures, profits, and prospects of life, while others whose benefit this is to be done lie idle, enjoying all the sweets of society, accumulating wealth and abundance, and laying foundations for opulent and powerful families for many generations. So I think the arduous duties of the times ought to be discharged in rotation. And I never will engage more in politics but upon this system, end quote. Interesting. There's a lot of things in here. That's the thing about John Adams and a lot of these founding fathers. Not just John Adams, by the way. They write a paragraph and it's like, okay, let me spend the next 10 minutes picking this apart for all the wisdom that's just buried in this thing. I mean, it's just, it just, the wisdom just flies off the page at you. It's like somebody, it's like you're standing in front of a, one of those machines that cranks out the baseballs at batting practice, and they start just shooting things right at your face, you know, just one right after the other in rapid fashion. It's like, okay, let me take this one at a time. This speaks to his perspective on serving in an assembly or a congress at the time. And it's clear that this isn't for wealth-making. I've talked about this before. Politics at this particular time was not a, a pure money-making enterprise like it is today. Let's be honest about this. Let's not lie. Let's not continue to dilute ourselves into believing something that's not true. Politics today is money, 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 and power. It's almost all about money and some about power and control. That's what it's about in reality. Back during John Adams' time, he believed this to be a different creature, and many of the Founding Fathers did as well, which is why a great many of them did not enrich themselves on the backs of the American people during or after the war. Now, there were some cases where people tried, but a great many of these people didn't. And a great many of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence suffered horribly because of it, by the way. And so many of them were either killed or almost killed, you know, the, the Founding Fathers who actually put this stuff together. So let's, let's start from the beginning. Quote, Politics are an ordeal path among red-hot plowshares. Who then would be a politician for the pleasure of running about barefoot among them? End quote. So he's describing a situation where, I mean, red-hot plowshares, obviously burning hot, sharp objects, okay? And he's talking about running barefoot among them. That's what, poli that's what politics is. It's an ordeal path. That is to say, it's an ordeal. It's a difficulty. Okay. Now, now ask yourself this. Is politics today an ordeal path? Red-hot plowshares, all the rest of it? I don't think so. You have some of these people, 80, 90 years old, serving in politics. And do they, do, does it look like it's hard work? 
Does it, do you think that most of these people who are 80 years old in politics, do you think they're working really hard? Do you think it's an ordeal path? Do you think they would still be there if it was an ordeal path? These are people who, in many cases, are either millionaires or decamillionaires. If you don't know what a decamillionaire is, it's basically, deca means 10, and it means tens of millions of dollars. Why in the world would they still be in politics if they're a decamillionaire? I can guarantee it's not because it's an ordeal path. And if you look at the way some of these people talk and behave, you can rest assured it's not an ordeal path these people are on. It's a different circumstance altogether. So we're talking about two different systems. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I don't want you to mistake politics today for politics back then. Again, do not take your modern political template and overlay it on top of history from 200 years ago. Take it for what it is. It's not the same thing. The corruption in money in politics today was not the corruption in money in politics yesterday. 200, when I say yesterday, I mean 250 years ago. It's not the same. And I say that so that you know the situation that John Adams was walking into in Congress back in 1774 was not like Congress today. Very, very different situation. These people were fighting eventually, come 1775, these people were under threat of death and murder. And they were fighting for their lives, and there were, there were a number of situations where either some or many of the Founding Fathers were close to being overrun by the British Army and killed. And that adds even more to the weight of this, quote, ordeal path, end quote, that John Adams was talking about. That makes it even more treacherous. I mean, anybody anybody running for Congress today is lazy by comparison to what these people were going through at the time. Very lazy. And what's the sacrifice here that he's talking about? Let's talk about the sacrifice he mentions. Quote, Yet I don't think that one or a few men are under any moral obligations to sacrifice themselves and families... All the pleasures, profits, and prospects of life, while others whose benefit this is to be done, lie idle, enjoying all the sweets of society, accumulating wealth and abundance, end quote. So he's basically saying that if you stay out of the Congress, you can tend to your, your trade, your job. Like if John Adams didn't go to Congress in 1774, what would he be doing? What would he be doing? He would be tending to his law practice, right? And providing for his family and earning income and making money. And he would also be on his farm, tending to his crops and his fields, making money. But he, while he's in Congress, he can't do any of this crap. And while some money could be made in politics at the time, generally speaking, and serving in this, that, or the other thing, perhaps, it wasn't like it is today, okay? You see, it's, it, you see how the thing has been turned around almost 180 degrees. Back then, staying out of politics meant that you, quote, accumulating wealth and abundance and laying foundations for opulent and powerful families for many generations, end quote, right? So, so you get to do all these things outside of politics, not in politics. Today, it's the exact opposite, right? If you want to accumulate wealth and abundance, laying foundations for opulent and powerful families for many generations, well, you do that in politics, right? Exactly. Exactly. What have I mentioned before? People who go into politics, there's a strange situation that happens where normal people go into politics today, and they don't really have a lot of money when they go. But by the time they leave, they're millionaires or they're decamillionaires. How in the world does that happen? And does that happen to the average guy out here? In the world, does that happen to the uh, the soldier serving in the military? Does that happen, Not I guess, if they leave the military and they start their own business and very, become very successful, they can. It's not like it can't happen in society, but most people, it doesn't happen. But in politics, it seems to. Interesting. But that's not what we're talking about 200 years ago. Very different situation. And it is a sacrifice. Like he says, quote, sacrifice themselves and their families, end quote. So their, their families have to suffer somewhat, especially back then. When these people went to the Congress, they were committing treason, right? At least by 1775 they were, according to the British Empire. They're committing treason. And that was actually, had a, had a threat behind it, unlike today. 
Uh, back then, it had it had the threat of the British military coming into your house in the middle of the night and dragging you out of the house and hanging you outside. I don't think that's going to happen much today. You know, so, so again, you know, I mean, I don't think there was a whole lot of people going to the Congress in Philadelphia in 1774 that were going to become decamillionaires as a result of it. Far from it. Some of these people are going to lose everything that they had. We are dealing with a different breed of cat, ladies and gentlemen, than what we're, what we're dealing with today. And it's important to keep that in the back of your mind as you think about this. So when I mention Congress, I don't want you to be thinking about Congress today. I want you to be thinking about Congress 250 years ago because it's a very different circumstance. And it's important. When you think about John Adams, don't think of him like a, somebody going to Congress today. Because if you do, you're, you're doing the man a disservice. Because he was a very different human being. Very different human being with very different struggles. And we, we're, what I'm trying to do here is put you in this mindset of 1774. I'm trying to pull you out of the 21st century and get you into that 1774 mindset. Think 1774. This is a different world. Different world. And don't get me wrong. A lot of things, a lot of things just never change. You know, politics is politics, after all, and people are people, and governments are governments, but the circumstances under which these things are done can be very, very different. To say nothing of the fact that most of the Founding Fathers were people of extraordinary character, especially a John Adams or a Samuel Adams. You know, there were some who didn't have such good characters, and there were some who had, well, good character in some areas, not so good character in other areas, but by and large, a great many of them, very good characters, especially, especially a John Adams or a Samuel Adams. Now let's look at it from the perspective of somebody else, actually, interestingly, from from the London side of things in 1774. This is an interesting perspective, isn't it? We're going to talk to you about what, what the view was from London, from a certain perspective. There were different perspectives in London. There were people who were very much pro-colony. That is to say, they, they believe the colonies are fine. They can represent themselves in their assemblies and everything. And then there were other people who were very tyrannical. Um, so we're, I'm going to read you a letter that was written to John Adams from an Edward Dilley on March the 4th of 1774. It was written from London, and starting off a little ways into the letter, quote, I have also sent you a copy of Mr. Burr's Political Disquisitions, a book uh, just published, which the author begs you will accept as a small token of his esteem for a just character as a friend to liberty. I flatter myself that you will find much pleasure in its perusal. His ideas of government are very just and clear and many useful hints may be gathered, which may furnish sufficient matter for the establishment of a new government upon a solid foundation. Long parliaments are the bane to this, as well as every other country. Nothing is more conducive to the welfare of a nation as frequent appeals to the people. We were speaking upon this subject a few days ago, when I had the pleasure of a select number of friends to dine with me, Dr. Franklin, Mr. Alderman, Mr. Ewan, and Dr. Williamson. Dr. Franklin was observing the very great difference there was between a person soliciting for a seat in Parliament in England and in America, the former making great promises of what he would do for his constituents, and the latter requesting that he may be excused from serving any longer on account of his own affairs. The first wants either a place or pension, and the other means only to serve his country, end quote. Interesting stuff. So he actually, so he was sitting down with Dr. Franklin, no less. And by the way, Dr. Franklin, I'm fairly certain he means Dr. Benjamin Franklin. And who better than him to comment on such a topic as that, having seen both the uh, American perspective and the British perspective up close and personal. Benjamin Franklin was in London for a, a, period, a good period of time, as I understand it, uh, before coming back to the uh, United States, well, what was to become the United States, the colonies at the time to uh, go to Congress and do the other things, and then, of course, eventually being shipped off to France. He was a great asset to the United States. But anyway, 
this there's there's this first comment he makes about long parliaments. Quote, long parliaments are the bane of this, as well as every other country. Nothing is more conducive to the welfare of a nation as frequent appeals to the people, end quote. So what does he mean by long parliaments? I believe what he means to say about this is a situation where parliaments extend on and on for a period of time. The, the mod- What's the modern equivalent of this? I try to put this in the context for you. There are some, like, for example, most state legislatures do not meet year-round. They either meet once a year for a few months and then leave, or they meet periodically once every other year or something of that nature, as opposed to the United States Congress, which is just in session pretty much all the time. Except when they do their August recess or their their you know their Christmas recess, well I'm sure they don't call it that anymore though. He- you know, heaven forbid. But um, when they read, obviously, but but by and large, they're they're in business all around the clock. It seems 24/7. That, that would be like a long Parliament, as I understand it. Uh, in the uh, in the in the description here, that's the equivalent, as opposed to a state legislature, which is not. Now let's talk about this difference between people who are in an elected position, perhaps. Quote, the very great difference there was between a person soliciting for a seat in Parliament in England and in America, the former making great promises of what he would do for his constituents, and the latter requesting that he may be excused from serving any longer on account of his own affairs. The first wants either a place or pension, and the other means only to serve his country, end quote. Typically, when a politician in the United States runs for office today, what do they typically do? Don't they make great promises for their constituents? What you, what am I going to do for these people? What am I going to do for that people? That's pretty much what they do, right? I'll, I'll assume that you agree with me on that one because having kept an eye on things in in a, in, the, in a political world since I was I don't know 14 years old, I've been into this for a very long time, longer than most, as far as people equivalent to my age anyway. And I can tell you that I, that's typically what I see. I mean, the most co- the Probably one of the most frustrating examples of this I see is during like a presidential election, for example, the person in the crowd, when they're doing like a town hall or something like that, person in the crowd will stand up and say, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? And I think to myself, what an absolute despicable human being. <laughs> and I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's just the way that it is. That is, uh, that is, the, the, that is, that is just despicable selfishness on display. That's what this guy's talking about. You know, when he says, quote, the former making great promises of what he would do for his constituents, end quote. That's what, that's exactly what this guy's talking about, that kind of despicable behavior. And politicians feed on that kind of stuff. They feed on it, just like these people running for parliament back in the day. Quote, the first wants either a place or pension, end quote. So that all they want is basically, and what's a place or pension? They basically want an office for the purposes of having an office. Or they want a pension. But that's basically money. They want income. They want to get money out of this. They're looking for money out of their political station. As opposed to, quote, the other means only to serve his country, end quote. Interesting. We seem to have actually kind of gone full circle where, you know, this problem that we had with Parliament back in the day, these people looking for a place or pension, is exactly the system that's in the United States today. That's not necessarily the fault of the politician. It's the fault of the people of the United States. When they stand up and they ask, what are you going to do for me? That's a problem. Now, it's not like politicians shouldn't ever do anything to help their constituents, but if, if that's all anything ever revolves around is this constant, what are you going to do for me scenario, that's a, that's a big problem. And that's what this guy's, this, that's what Dr. Franklin is basically warning about here. It doesn't come from this guy in London. It comes from Dr. Remember, he's, he's basically talking about what Dr. Franklin said. So Benjamin Franklin's talking about this, not the guy from London, although the guy from London seems sympathetic to it. And he's saying that in America at this time, it was different. So again, this is further evidence from Dr. Franklin and from both John Adams and now Dr. Franklin that there is a big difference between politics of today 
and politics of yesterday. The politics of today more most closely resemble that of Parliament in 1774, which I regard as being a problematic situation. However, in, in, in America in 1774, it was a different situation, a different kind of person going to Congress. You see? See how that works? Keep that in mind. Don't forget about that as we begin going through this, because I'm not going to talk a lot more about this from here on out. I'm not going to... Um, we're going to be focusing on so many other things, but I want to beat this to death in this episode so that you understand every time I talk about Congress and these politicians and all the rest of it, we're dealing with a different breed of cat. For the most part. Not always. Not always. There's exceptions to the rules. But for the most part, John Adams... Samuel Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Jay were not those people. They weren't the people like what they're describing in Parliament back then, or like what we have today. Different breed of cat. Now let's talk about something a little bit more along the lines from this very same letter. We're not gonna we're we're on the same letter here from this guy from London. Let's talk let's talk more about what we, what what we're hoping is gonna happen in the colonies, what he hopes will happen in the colonies throughout this process. And keep in mind, this is March of March fourth of seventeen seventy four. We actually went back in time a little bit from our prior prior letters. We were basically focusing in June and July previous. Now we've gone back to March. And now there's a there's a reason why I did that. I was trying to group things together a little bit more by topic. But keep that in mind, because why, do, why keep that in mind? March of 1774, that's when the Intolerable Acts happen, and he's going to talk about it here. He doesn't call it that, because he doesn't know what it's going to be yet. But that comes out towards the end of March, I believe, and really gets enacted somewhere around the summer of... 1774. These things come out in succession, and they begin to be implemented here and there. So let's go into what this folk, this guy from London thinks about this particular situation going on between Britain, which is angry with the, especially the colony of Massachusetts, and what's actually happening on the ground in North America. Quote, the affairs relative to North America are expected to come on in the House of Commons in a few days, and Lord Dartmouth will lay the papers concerning the transactions of Boston before the House of Lords at the same time, so that we shall know in a short time what steps the ministry will take to subdue what they call the evil spirit which is gone forth in America, but what others would term a noble exertion of the just rights of the people against ministerial encroachments. For my own part, I am inclined to think that they will be fearful of pursuing vigorous measures, and indeed we are not in a capacity of doing much, a treasury almost exhausted and burdened with an, in, an immense national debt. Under these circumstances, good policy would lead me to pursue such steps only as will conciliate the affections of the colonies to the mother country. Our interest, like that of a husband and wife, is reciprocal. One cannot be hurt without the others being equally injured. I most sincerely wish the breach was healed, and that henceforward we shall never be more at variance, end quote. And by more at variance, he means, you know, variance means difference. So he, he doesn't want things to be more disagreeable than they are now. It's already disagreeable enough between the two parties, that is to say the colonies in Great Britain, the mother country, as he calls it. And this is interesting, quote, For my own part, I am inclined to think that they will be fearful of pursuing vigorous measures, end quote. He turns out to be wrong here. He doesn't know about the intolerable acts yet. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen, but it, it turns out that very vigorous measures are taken. The intolerable acts end up going through. They get imposed upon the colonies, and really bad things result from that. And it, the, things, the, the kind of things that drive John Adams to the Congress in Philadelphia. And it's interesting how they got there. Even Despite this guy's argument that Britain is in no capacity to be doing anything crazy here. Britain goes ahead and does something crazy. Quote, We are not in a capacity of doing much, a treasury almost exhausted and burdened with an immense national debt, end quote. 
This is the thing about the tyrant you need to understand. The tyrant doesn't care about any particular reason for being more conciliatory, that is to say, for being more diplomatic. The tyrant doesn't care. The tyrant is going to do what the tyrant does. And more often than not, when the tyrant is faced with a situation like this, where it feels like you can't really do a lot because of the immense national debt, the exhausted treasury, and all the rest of it, the tyrant is going to double down. Either because of ego, or to save face, or whatever the case may be, the tyrant is going to double down. And in, in this particular paragraph, that's a lesson. If you want to be able to tell if somebody is going tyrannical in a situation so adverse as this, where you have people in the colonies who are really, they're wanting to, to negotiate this out. They're petitioning the king, and they're saying, hey, let's work this out. You know, and, and we talked about George Washington before, the county at Fairfax. They were willing to make provisions for their own defense so the British didn't have to spend the money to do it. They were, they set up a situation where they were taxing themselves they were provisioning their own weapons and munitions, and they were they were suggesting to their own people that they organize into a, quote, well-regulated militia, end quote, for their own defense, so that the British didn't have to spend the money anymore to defend the colonies. They were willing to go to all of these lengths to be diplomatic about this. And the treasury in Britain was exhausted, so why engage in some kind of a commerce war with the colonies? And they were burned by a huge national debt. So again, why exacerbate these issues of commerce between the colonies and Great Britain? You've got the colonists now because of the intolerable acts. I and mean, what happens as a result of the intolerable acts? It just gets worse. You've got people talking about a non-importation and non-consumption agreement in the colonies. In other words, don't import anything from Britain. Don't buy anything from them. Let's boycott them. Which is bound to make this treasury situation and the national debt even worse. You think the king cares? He doesn't care. Any reasonable person would say, well, of course the king cares about this. No, he doesn't. He's a tyrant. And this is the great lesson from this letter. This is how you know a tyrant when you see one. This is one of the reasons. There's probably about 50 different reasons. But this is, this is, a, this is one reason why you know, okay, this guy's a tyrant. Because he simply doesn't care. He will hurt his own country. He will hurt his own people. He will hurt the colonists. And he will hurt himself as much as he has to to get his tyranny to perpetuate, to continue. Don't forget about that. So if you think you can, you know, when you start seeing people double down like that and go all, it, it's a surefire sign that they're tyrannical. And especially when they start, I mean, for crying out loud, especially when they start blockading a port and preventing all commerce in a particular area uh, for no other reason than they're just upset with you. And they start quartering troops and they start kicking people out of the General Assembly that they don't like. You know, in other words, messing with the, the representative government in such a way as to try to affect it. Unfortunately, our, our friend Mr. Edward Dilley from London, his, his, his aspirations here of, of reaching some kind of a, a conciliatory measure between the colonies and, and Britain, just it doesn't, doesn't happen. We know that in hindsight, but there were certainly people in London who really didn't want to see things get so bad as they were. All of London and all of Britain was not bad. I just I wanted to make sure and paint that picture. This letter was a very good opportunity for me to be able to do that. And for me to be able to show you, see, look, there are people in London, there are people in Britain who really do want a good relationship between the colonies and Great Britain. And the Founding Fathers wanted that too. You think they wanted to fight a war and get shot at? I think George Washington wanted to take to his horse and get shot at and almost killed on several occasions and watch people die all around him. He, he just, believe me, having read everything that I have from that man, I haven't read everything he ever wrote, but I've read a lot, and I can tell you this much, I'm pretty sure that guy was fairly content to stick to his crops. And I think John Adams was fairly content to tend to his fields and his crops and his law practice also. 
So if anybody ever tries to paint the Founding Fathers to you as a bunch of warmongers who are just uh, angry and they just wanted to fight and shoot at, shoot at British soldiers and all the rest of it, it's a bunch of crap. Their letters bear this out. And, and if anybody ever tries to tell you that, well, everybody in Britain was evil and they wanted to oppress the colonists and all the rest of it, this letter demonstrates to you that that's not, that's not true either. You know, the tyranny really resided, and the, the push for conflict really resided in two places, the British Parliament and the King of England. And honestly, there maybe a third. There were some colonists in in, in the colonies in, in in the Americas that that really. It's not so much that they wanted to start a shooting war, but they they at this point they were willing. They wanted to separate no matter no matter what it cost. If they had to burn the the whole of the colonies to the ground, they probably would have done it. But the, believe me, those people were few and far between, as best I can tell. And it certainly was not a John Adams or even a Sam Adams was a rabble rouser for sure. But I don't even think Sam Adams was like that. Um, maybe in some regard, but uh, not completely, and certainly not a John Adams or a George Washington. So, that brings us to a conclusion for this episode. I hope that was enlightening, as far as everything from what John Adams felt about mobs, and, and this thing that was going around Massachusetts at the time with that, and also the weight on his shoulders of going to the Congress. This was a huge burden on him, and he was very anxious about it. He said so himself. That's the word he used. It's kind of anxiety about him about this. And then this, uh, this also this perspective from London on what was going on in the colonies from that perspective. I think we got a lot of different I think we got a lot of different things going on in this particular episode, and I think it's a good, good perspective on precisely what was happening in 1774. And with that said, we are going to conclude this episode of the podcast in the next section. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, more perspective from John Adams on what was happening in Massachusetts back in 1774, leading up to this period of time that we're going to be talking about in the not-too-distant future, the Revolutionary War. And it's, it's, it is interesting, I think, to look at uh, John Adams on his way to Philadelphia and what he was doing right before that. You know, he had a life before Philadelphia. He had a life before the Congress. And it was, um, it was just an extra burden that he had to carry this knowledge that he was going to Philadelphia. And what a, what a burden that must have been. I, I think about that sometimes and how I would handle that, how any of us might handle that. It's, it's um, really just almost inconceivable. But uh, I, hope you, I hope you got something out of that. I hope you got something out of those letters. I thought they were all very interesting. And we'll be continuing to talk about John Adams in the in the next few podcast episodes, most likely, and continuing on in those letters leading up into 1775. And then, of course, we'll be talking about other founding fathers from this particular period of time as well, and then eventually further topics of concern, obviously, when the war gets here, when, when the war really gets going a few years from now, uh, from the perspective of this particular podcast episode, from the perspective of 1774, uh, it's going to be some Gonna be some dark days for the uh, for the founding fathers, really, because it's a um, very tough time there in the beginning. But anyway, that's a ways off yet. So uh, I'll look forward to seeing you folks on the next episode of the podcast. That's gonna be episode number seventeen. As the episodes continue to go on by, honestly, I'm kind of shocked at this point that we're already up to episode 16, being this episode here. Uh, it's been a long time since I, it feels like it's been a long time since I started this thing, but really it hasn't been very long at all. Uh, but I hope you're uh, enjoying the ride so far, and I hope you uh, get a chance to maybe check out also my Patreon podcast. That's at patreon.com slash podcast with Roman. The, the link is in the description box to this podcast. And I, I've been working on this, I mentioned this before, I've been working on it in episode talking about the 80th anniversary uh, of World War II, more specifically talking about the war itself on the 80th anniversary. My next episode to drop there is most likely going to be my December 7th episode. Uh, it's gonna, So it's going to land there be before December 7th. 
but um, it's really in memory of that that I that I dropped that episode, and it's I put probably more work into that episode than I have any other episode that I've done, any other one episode that I've done, either on this ep- this podcast or the Patreon podcast. And I I really think if you haven't listened to a thorough discourse on the main issues surrounding World War II in the Pacific. You really should listen to that that podcast. And I because I, I, I really do believe there isn't enough talk about what happened there. And there's a lot of misinformation, more specifically misunderstanding, I guess I'll say. Not so much misinformation, misunderstanding. And there's a lot of really weird, weird conversation that goes on around the war in the Pacific. And you'll find out what I mean by that when you listen to that episode. It's going to be a very essential podcast. And good luck finding that particular discussion anywhere else in podcasting. Honestly, anywhere else, period. Except a couple of places online perhaps but it's going to be a, it's going to be a very good perspective i think on that so give that a listen over there on the patreon side if you want to if you're interested at all in that uh, so with that said, uh, again, I'll look forward to seeing you folks on episode number 17. I, again, I certainly do appreciate you uh, sharing this podcast, uh, getting the word out about it. Some of you folks out there are doing the, the yeoman's work, so to speak, on doing that, and I really appreciate that. And so we will continue to march on, but until the next episode, this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>